Did you know that NATO is coming to town? Yeah, and they're we on Sundays, and they did not consult us about. They they didn't ask us if that was okay, and um, so it could be that we have something to worship on May twentieth. Does that sound right? Like a Sunday? Um, And so I will this next week. um, Providence. I was having a conversation with a covenant pastor of Hispanic church in Oak Park. It's all a church plant like ours, about our same age. And we have talked and wondered about the possibility of worshiping together uh, at some point. He pointed out to me that NATO is coming and invited church to worship with him in Oak Park on that day. So we make our way out to Oak Park in the afternoon and worship together. I love that idea. Uh, we would need some of you bilingual folks to volunteer to translate for us. Their service is in Spanish. Uh, but I think that would be a pretty awesome experience to be worshiping together uh, with our family in Oak Park. So, again, I'll know more next week. I'll confirm uh, with, with uh, Pastor Sergio uh, this week whether we can do that or not and let you know. But I wanted to give you a heads up. Okay, I'm going to do this one, Mitchell. You could stand with me. We're going to read First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve, verses First uh, Corinthians chapter six, verses twelve through twenty. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in body. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we ask now through the power of your spirit that you would open our hearts and minds to your word for us today. Give us courage to confront what you have for us. Be merciful as you deal with us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. We are in week number three of a sermon series called Being Adam, Living as God's Peculiar People. We've uh, discussed how the word Adam, which we're familiar with, many of us, from the Old Testament, from Genesis especially, uh, is a Hebrew word that means uh, humanity. 
God creating humanity. And that to be human, to be Adam, is to be created for relationship. Relationship with one another and relationship with our God. Sin is what separates us from each other and from God. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, reconciles us to God and to one another, allowing us, inviting us to be fully human once again, living in reconciled relationship with our God and with our neighbor. Uh, We acknowledge, though, that we live in a world that knows separation. We have experienced separation, division, hostility, and we breathe that air every day. And so it's not just a a quick snap of the fingers that we move from knowing separation to reconciliation. The scriptures we find urge us over and over again to live into our identity as the reconciled people of God, to live into what God says is already true about us. And we've said, as we've looked uh, so far at truth and hospitality, that as we live this way, we will seem a peculiar people, an odd people, a strange people. As we live the sorts of lives God has called us to live in relationship with one another, our lives will stand out. They will seem weird and different at times. Well, this morning, my sermon title is Body and Breath. This morning we look at our bodies uh, and how our bodies uh, impact how we live in relationship with one another as God's reconciled people. Now, I don't know what stands out to you in the text that we just read together, what lines or what words stand out to you, but for me it's in verse 15. Paul asks the rhetorical question, shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? That catches my attention. Does it catch your attention? This seems to me a a sort of instruction that you would uh, discuss in private with somebody, not publicly. Why does Paul choose to to talk about this in a very public manner? This letter is written to a specific church to be read out loud to that church, but then to be circulated to all the churches in the area. So this is not a private instruction. These words about sexuality, about prostitutes. This is for the whole church. So I want to say that Paul is not necessarily addressing just one certain behavior or one certain person. He's talking so that everybody can hear. Paul is addressing the beliefs and the assumptions that would lead to this sort of behavior. Do you see what I mean? He's not just addressing the thing itself, sleeping with a prostitute. He's addressing the beliefs and the assumptions that would make that okay. Are you with me? Okay. So what is Paul addressing? What beliefs, assumptions is he addressing? Well, our clue comes from one word that's used eight times in our text. It's the word body or bodies. This is the Greek word soma, S-O-M-A is how it would be transliterated. Body. Paul is infatuated with the body in this text. 
This is our clue to the underlying beliefs and assumptions that Paul is actually addressing. Paul is talking to a people in the Roman Empire who are deeply influenced by Greek culture. And and Greek culture, and this is kind of a, a very short description of Greek culture. There are those of you in this room who know far more about this than I do, so don't send me an email afterwards saying, well, you weren't nuanced, I know. Okay? I'm being quick here. Greek culture would have uh, um, understood the body in sort of a dualistic sense, a separation between the body, the skin, and the soul or the spirit. People were made up of these two different entities, body and soul, let's just say. And of course, you can imagine that this sort of understanding of what it meant to be human leads to certain practices, even spiritual practices. And so you can imagine a pendulum that might swing one or of two different ways. On the one hand, people would indulge their bodies, gratifying their bodies, because after all, the body, you see, didn't really matter. It was the soul, the spirit. That was most important. So you could do what you wanted to with your body, knowing that it didn't matter that much. It was what was inside that counted. Or, on the other hand, the pendulum would swing to where you would completely neglect your body. You would not eat very much. You would try to avoid every form of earthly pleasure as a means of caring for your soul. This was the, the, the air that the, the Corinthians were breathing, who Paul was writing to. And you can imagine that this sort of belief has real effects on people, on relationships. Paul mentions uh, prostitutes here. The, these uh, people, this church, would have been very aware and had experienced temple prostitution where women or young children were sold to different temples, to different cults, and their bodies were used as worship to different gods. When we hear the word prostitute, that's probably not what we think of, but this is probably what the Corinthian church would have imagined. This way of understanding what it means to be human had very real consequences. And the Corinthian church brought these with them. They didn't just shed these beliefs, these ideas. They brought their understanding of what it meant to be human with them into church. I don't think we're that different. Western culture, of which we belong to, has uh, brought and borrowed and adapted much from those ancient Greek people. I think we too experience and understand this duality. I think our obsession with health and weight is one of those ways this duality plays out. Now, maybe that doesn't make sense. After all, isn't our obsession with health like a love of our bodies, a caring for our bodies? I don't know if you saw this New York Times story about two weeks ago. There's a new diet, and, and it's, it's mostly um, being used by women who are about to get married. It's called the feeding tube diet. Anybody hear this? A couple. For, for $1,500, you can have a feeding tube put through your nose, down your esophagus, into your stomach, and then you carry around a little bag of feeding solution 
which feeds you 800 calories a day so that you can fit into the wedding dress of your dreams come your special day. Now, this is crazy, I think. Clearly, these people are interested in their body, but their body is a means to an end. They're not caring for their bodies. They are, I think, in many ways, abusing their bodies. I think this is true of much of how our culture experiences health, our obsession with certain television shows about losing weight. It's not about a caring for and a loving for a body. It's about a means to an end, knowing that if we can reach a certain image of what it means to be a man or a woman, then we have attained something, experienced something, we're validated in some way, that interior thing in us is satisfied. I think another way we see this duality play out is the way that we tend to separate somebody's essential self from the culture that has formed them. I have heard from more than one a person who has immigrated to America about a, a certain conversation that is fairly common. This new immigrant will be sharing with a native-born American, somebody like me, about what they miss from their country, from their culture, from their history, from their family, how difficult it has been for them to leave that behind. And the, the person's response goes something like, well, yes, but at least you're here. In America, the land of opportunity, it's a whole lot better than whenever you, wherever you came from. And this is a, a separation of, of, of somebody's sort of essential self, at least you're here, from all that formed this person, the language, the culture, the tradition, the family, the memory. Are you with me? Another way we see this is in sort of the cultural ideal of colorblindness. That, that, that we strive to be a society that doesn't see color, doesn't see race, doesn't talk about these things. No, I just want to see you as the individual you are. We live in a post-racial society, right? We're not supposed to think about, talk about, notice race. What we're saying is that I want to just know the essence of the person without having to bother with the complicated features of the body of the physical world. Finally, I think we see this duality in our day play out much like the Corinthians did in the realm of sexuality. I think for the Corinthians, this is maybe where they experienced it most poignantly, and I wonder if it's not the same for us as well. Think about for a second the category, the social category of sexual identity. Everybody's paying attention now, right? Ooh. Think about this for a second. The category, the very powerful social category of one's sexual identity. Jonathan Katz, in an article published a few years ago in a, a, a journal called The Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies Reader, points out that these categories of heterosexual or homosexual were not used culturally until less than 100 years ago. It just wasn't a way that a person would define themselves. Anthrop anthropologist Janelle 
Williams Paris, she writes this. She says, um, and I think we might have this uh, slide. Of all the humans who have ever lived, very few have had sexual identities. Defined in a wide variety of ways, social identities related to sex, such as male and female, and gender, such as boy and girl, are common across world cultures. Identity categories based in sexuality, such as heterosexual and homosexual, are much less common. And yet, despite its rather recent history as a social category, I think all of us would agree that sexual identity carries a lot of importance and power in our culture today. Would you agree? And, and the, the power that this category carries, it's not just in like a theoretical way. You know, people sitting around in the university discussing these things. It, it doesn't have power even as cannon fodder in larger cultural wars. No, this, this social category has tons of power in very, very personal ways. I, for example, am aware that I am a heterosexual male. That is a label that I carry. This is part of who I am. And in contrast to other social categories, sexual identity is defined by what? By my desire. I am defined by my sexual desire. In my case, desire towards members of the opposite gender rather than desire towards members of of my own gender. And this is true whether or not a person is sexually active or has ever been sexually active. Sexual identity still exerts a tremendous amount of power. If you doubt this, have a conversation with any of our young people, with, with, with students who are entering junior high. Ask, have this conversation with them, and you will learn how powerful this category is. The pressure that certain uh, children feel to define themselves one way or another. Why? Why does sexual identity as a category carry so much weight in our culture? Uh, we could spend about a year discussing that question. Would you agree? This is how I would answer it for our purposes today. This category carries so much power because it is an expression of duality, of a dualism, of how we understand ourselves as people, a separating of the body and the soul, the flesh and the spirit, or in this case, actions from desires. like the Greeks who valued their conception of the soul, far above everything else, we elevate individual desire above all else. All of us in this room, in some way, play into this duality and experience it regularly. When I claim that heterosexuality is an important part of my identity, and by the way, when I do this, I am claiming an identity that simply adds to my position of privileged and power, 
But when I claim this as an essential part of my identity, I'm simply reflecting the very same duality that the Corinthian church experienced so many years ago. In, in other words, you and I, we breathe similar air to this Corinthian church. And our view, our conception of persons as being separated, flesh from spirit, body from soul, action from desire, has very real devastating consequences on how we view ourselves and how we interact with each other. So what does Paul do? How does Paul interact with this duality? You see, when the Corinthian church, when the Corinthian Christians submitted to Jesus as their Lord, they entered a way of life for which they had had very little cultural preparation. The same is true for us. The duality that they were used to was no longer vigorous enough for the kingdom of God that they had been called to experience and to represent. And so Paul begins, he uses this phrase, the two became one flesh. Now he's quoting, isn't he? He's quoting from Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, God says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. One flesh. In in contrast to a Greek and a Western or an American perspective about these kinds of things, the ancient Hebrew people understood humans to be integrated wholes, not a separation between the body and the soul. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and Daniel, I think we have this. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a what? A living being. Now, uh, Jody might say I'm not getting this quite right, and he would be right to do so. He knows Hebrew far better than I do. But my understanding of the language in this text is that the the, the phrase, the words around living being has to do with a conception of a person, a wholly integrated person. You might translate it soul, but it wouldn't be how we understand soul. That's why it's not translated that way in this text, because we hear soul, we think disembodied things separate from my body. But here you hear, you see living being, the result of God creating humanity is an integrated whole. The Lord God formed a man. Now that's the word Adam again. Humanity. He's talking about us. From the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And forms a whole, living, unseparated, undivided person. Now we might say that there are two elements that form a person. That we can see in this text. Many of us are used to thinking about the body and the soul, the flesh and the spirit. That's not what we see here. We see two elements. The first element is a body. Say body. It's pretty straightforward. What's the second element that makes a human a human? Breath. God breathes into Adam. And Adam lives. 
God forms a person and then breathes into this person. And it is these two elements, body and breath, the breath of God, that make us human. You are body and breath. You are animated by the Spirit of God, by the breath of God. And so Job, in Job chapter 34, we read, if it were God's intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all people would perish together and would return to the dust. The dust from which God first forms humanity. Job says, if the breath of God is removed, if that second element is removed, we return to dust. This is what it means for the ancient Hebrew peoples to be human, to be a body that is animated by the breath of God. And so it would make no sense for them to say, I have a body. This isn't how they would talk. They might say, I am a body. We don't talk that way. We talk about our bodies as if they're something separate from us, right? We critique them. We hold them up against somebody else's body, a billboard that we drive by. We, we, we think of them as something that is, we have some control over. I can separate myself from it, and I can do this thing, and, and I can get better at that thing, and if I work, exercise harder here, I stop this bad habit, then the ancient Hebrew people wouldn't talk this way. I have a body. I am a body, they would say. A body that is animated by the breath of God. Now, for the ancient Hebrews, there were uh, uh, two other elements to talking about the body. They would talk about visible and invisible elements. And again, this is not a duality, a separating. This is talking about the body. And so they would talk about the flesh, that which you can see, the part of your body that acts in the world to do great good or great harm. This is flesh, and we see this language of our flesh throughout the Scriptures. And then that invisible part... Not a soul, not a spirit, but our heart. This is the language that the, that the Hebrews prefer. To talk about that invisible element of what it means to be human. And a heart might capture such things as our mind, spirituality, affections, will, conscience. And so in Psalm chapter 84, the poet writes, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My soul, my living being, all of who I am, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Here is a picture, an image of a whole person, an integrated whole, longing for God, yearning for God. And what we find in the New Testament, of course, is that Jesus, the Son of God, enfleshed in our humanity, meets this yearning. When we started this church, we spent close to a year in the Gospel of Matthew, and we saw how often Jesus talks about our hearts, transforming our hearts. And we might be tempted when we hear Jesus talk like that to say, well, he's talking about saving my soul, giving, you know, coming into that interior dimension of my life. This is not what Jesus has in mind. He is, in fact, claiming the lordship of God over the entirety of ourselves. Everything that makes us up, our flesh and our hearts. And so for Paul, there is no separating 
a person into a body and a soul. Jesus claims all of us, not parts of us. Jesus claims all of us, not parts of us. So the implication, of course, is pretty clear. It's not rocket science. What we do with our bodies matters. And what we do with or do to someone else's body matters. In both cases, bodies are persons. Persons formed by God, animated by the Spirit of God. Paul then adds a couple of other components to what it means to be human, what it means to have bodies. He says that our bodies will be resurrected. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. This is so important to Paul that he spends all of chapter 15 of this letter just talking about the resurrection. Christ's body and of our bodies. In fact, he says that that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. Does that phrase sound familiar to anybody? The first fruits? A couple folks. First fruits, that's that's like the first little grapes that come up on the grapevine. Or the first apples that come up on the apple tree. You're not going to harvest then. It would be disappointing. But it's showing you what's about to come. So Paul says, when we look at Jesus and Jesus' bodily resurrection, it's the first fruits, it's the template, it's the pattern for our resurrection one day. We too will be resurrected in our bodies. The second thing he adds is that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now this is important because in the Old Testament, it was the Spirit of God that gave life, but the Holy Spirit, as we see him in the, in the New Testament, only came onto people occasionally and for a certain amount of time and then withdrew. But not so in the New Testament. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and stays, dwelling in and among God's people. And so Paul says, you are temples of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we read this language in John chapter 20. Jesus, as he's about to leave his disciples, says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father God creating Adam breathes life to this lifeless body and animates him, so Jesus breathed. And the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in the people of God, in our bodies. We are integrated wholes, living beings who will be resurrected in our bodies after the pattern of Jesus and who are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. All right, say amen if I've not completely lost you. Ooh, that is not confidence building at all. I interpret it that like I sort of have lost you or are, are we okay? Can I keep moving forward? Yes? Okay. We're actually a little bit close here to being done. I, I'm hoping to leave a little bit of time after our service is done. We can kind of do some Q&A and discussion for those of you who want to uh, stick around.
So, so where does this leave us? It leaves us, I would say, as a very, 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 very peculiar people in our world. In a world of duality, this leaves us a strange people. Imagine a couple things with me. We are called to treat one another as Holy Spirit-filled temples. Watch this. Who we will recognize one day in God's coming kingdom. Think about that for a minute. Now, 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 on Easter Sunday, we talked about the fact that when Jesus is resurrected, he seems like a stranger to his disciples for a little while, but then they do recognize him, right? And Jesus is the first fruits, right? So we can look at Jesus, look at his resurrection, look at the pattern of his resurrection, and we can learn something about what our resurrection one day will look like. So now, interact with each other as people who are housing the very Holy Spirit of the living God but also people who one day we will recognize in eternity. Is that weird to you? That is strange to me. But the reality is, and, 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 and I don't think this is too much of a leap, that one day Jason and I will recognize each other in God's eternal kingdom. It might take us a little while, right? Because it took the disciples a little while to recognize Jesus. Something about Jesus had changed a little bit, sort of his post-resurrection body was a little bit different, but then they got there. So one day, Jason and I would be like, what? Oh, it is you. Jason. We recognize each other. That's crazy, right? The bodies we have now, something about them now will be recognizable to us then. Does that shift at all how we think about how we interact with each other now? People who house the very Holy Spirit of the living God, who we will know for all of eternity? C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Do you see? people you interact with, that you talk with, the person that you are dating, who you are married to, C.S. Lewis says, is immortal. Think about that the, the next time your friend lets you down a little bit. Think about that the next time your spouse says that thing that you know that they know they shouldn't say to you that late at night. Where does this leave us? It leaves us loving one another as whole persons. It means that we do not separate one's culture, history, or memory from who they are. That we are, in fact, learning to love each other as whole people. We are learning one another's stories. We are learning one another's histories. We are learning about each other's families, the things that have made us who we are. We understand that this, in fact, is who God has created us to be. We love one another as whole persons. Now, this may be a little bit of a tangent, but listen, this means also that we as a church do not elevate married people over single people. 
This is one of the ways this duality plays out in many churches, that we somehow we interact with single people as if they're lacking something. And then when you're married, somehow magically you become a whole person. There's nothing biblical about that at all. Paul and Jesus, they say, actually, you know, singleness is maybe the best way to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You have been given everything you need. You are a whole person as a single person. You lack nothing. Unfortunately, many times our churches, for whatever reasons, have bought into this duality, and we've made this weird hierarchy where there's this sense that, well, one day, One day you'll be able, capable, mature enough. I know there's like two of you that know what I'm talking about. Where does this leave us? It leaves us rejecting superficial and dehumanizing duality. It means that for that young person who is feeling a tremendous burden and pressure and anxiety to define himself or herself based on their very nascent sexual desire, that this child is instead given freedom within a community to actually fully grow up into the whole living being who God has created them to be. It means that we make very clear the difference between caring for our bodies and abusing our bodies to attain some arbitrary standard of femininity or masculinity. It means that the pervasiveness and the acceptance of pornography is called out for the ways these images disembody and dehumanize the people they portray. Where does this... Where does this view of the body of the person leave us? It leaves us saying that all of us has been claimed by Christ. That nothing in us, nothing about us, nothing associated with us has not been claimed by Christ. That Christ hasn't just claimed our soul, our heart, our spirit. Christ has claimed all of us. This is why Paul says in verse 19 of our passage, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Is there any part of you that Christ has not claimed? Is there any part of you that does not fall under the shadow of the cross? When we understand that we are living beings, we realize that there is nothing in us that has not been claimed by Jesus. Your heart is claimed and redeemed. Your memories, emotions, doubts, joys, confusions, hopes, expectations, desires have all been claimed by Christ. Your flesh has been claimed and redeemed by Jesus. Your words, your actions, your influence, your power, your history, your culture, your language is claimed and redeemed. All of you, all of who you are, has been claimed by Jesus. Whatever has been done to you, whatever you have done to yourself, to someone else, is claimed by Jesus. Worship team, can you guys come on up?
You are body and breath. You are body and breath. There is not parts of you that are separate from other parts. There are not parts of you that are somehow more important than other parts of you. You are a body created by God. And you are breath. It is the breath of God, the Spirit of God that gives you life, that animates your life. And because of this, when Jesus suffers, not theoretically for you, when Jesus suffers not in his soul for you, but Jesus suffers in his body for you, he's claiming all of you. Do you see? When Jesus goes to the cross, when all of Jesus goes to the cross, he claims all of you. See, in the early church, there was this conversation, this debate. Did Jesus really die? Or, or, or did his soul escape at the last minute? This was a really important debate. Did his soul escape because the Son of God couldn't actually die, couldn't actually suffer? The early church said no. No, the Son of God, in his body, took our sin, took our flesh, took our bodies into his, and died for us. Jesus didn't make a sacrifice of his soul so that your soul could be rescued somehow. Jesus is all of himself so that all of you can be claimed by God, so that all of you can be healed by God, so that all of you can be saved by God. Not parts of you, not bits and pieces of you, all of you. Is that good news to anybody? It's hard news too, church, because if we're honest, this means that we know we have to submit all of our lives to the cross. That there's absolutely nothing that we get to hold back for ourselves. Well, this doesn't really matter. I've given you my soul. This thing doesn't really matter over here. This desire, this want, this wish doesn't really know. Because Jesus claims all of us on the cross, when we submit to Jesus, we are submitting all of ourselves to Jesus. Amen? So it's a good word, but it's a hard word, church. So, you are body and breath. All of you is claimed by Jesus. What, have you are, what, what, what part of you are you holding what ways have you artificially divided yourself and kept some of you for yourself and then given some of you over to God? The gospel is that Jesus claims all of us and asks for all of us. Let's pray. Allow the gospel to be good news to us today, we ask Holy Spirit. Allow the gospel to be good news to our hearts today, Holy Spirit. Allow the gospel to be good news to our flesh today. Holy Spirit, we ask. We thank you again, Jesus, for suffering in your body for us. For suffering bodily for us. For not separating yourself. For not rescuing just parts of ourselves. But for rescuing, redeeming, claiming, healing, ruling over us all of us. So, so, so convict us and encourage us today. Convict us and encourage us today. And would you show us what does it look like 
to live as a fully integrated person, a living being? How does it look to live this way with my wife, with our husbands, with our friends, with our children, with our co-workers? What does it look like for us to treat these people not as, 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 as people who are separated from their soul and their flesh, but as, as full people created in the image of God, loved by God? Give us your imagination, God, for how to love and serve those you've placed in our lives. In Jesus' name. today, church. I, I, I could be wrong. Um, I'm guessing that there's something in these scriptures and my words and our songs that provoking the work of God in your life. Um, there's a couple of our prayer folks here uh, if you would like to be prayed for after the service. Uh, what we're also going to do is we've done before, um, after about five minutes, um, we'll gather kind of up in this front corner here and, uh, and dig in a little bit deeper for about 10 minutes. Questions that have come up, thoughts, responses, kind of dialogue around that together as well. If you have a kid, though, make sure that you go get your child first and then come back. Um, So feel free to stay around for prayer, and then I hope that you can stay around for a few minutes uh, to discuss together. Let this be the benediction for us now. Would you stand, please? This is again from Psalm chapter 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And so, Lord, we ask that you send us out now as whole people, as people who are aware that it is your very breath that gives us life. Would you remind us again today that in you, In you, all of our yearning, all of our longing has been met. We thank you for going to the cross. We thank you for claiming all of our lives. We thank you for healing us, restoring us, and redeeming us. Please continue to do this work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.